Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan. I'm Mark Kastner. This is the Sounder at Heart podcast. Joined by my co-hosts, Mickey Turner, Susie Rantz, Tim Foss, Beth Mantle, and Dave Clark. This has been an extremely weird podcast. How are they going to be able to handle that? Just the bottom line is they don't have an answer to that. There was never really a time when I was super concerned. Seattle did fine. There's a reason they got signed to first team contract. Very special guest, Brian Spencer, head coach of the Seattle Sounder. You know who he is. Brian how are you doing? I'd start off, Jeremiah, by saying one thing, and this isn't my quote. I have to attribute this to Tom Dutra. He always says, tough times don't last, tough people do. Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. Joining me today, or I'm Jeremiah O'Shan, and joining me today is someone you hopefully are a regular reader of and a regular listener of. Uh, Matt Doyle, uh, the MLS analyst from MLSsoccer.com and Extra Time Radio. How, welcome to the show. It's good to be back on the show. How many times have I been on the show now? Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure. I'm sure you've been on this podcast. I know you've been on my other bo- podcast as well. So, I don't know, maybe three or four times probably. So, welcome back either way. Yes, it's good to be back. Uh, so, let's just get – there's a lot of stuff I want to get into you, it with you Getting get into it with you. Uh, is that right? Uh, but let's start with the Sounders. Um, I thought it was interesting in your last column where you sort of tiered the MLS Cup contenders. You had the Sounders right up there uh, in the top tier. Uh, it felt a little bit like maybe that was written before the Whitecaps game. I doubt you saw anything in the Whitecaps game that would disabuse you of that notion. But, you know, they, they go into the playoffs on a Oh, three and three run six game on or six game winless streak. How worried are you? It sounds like you're not worried, but do you like, should Sounders fans be worried? Even though you as a un, you know, you have no emotional investment in this. Uh, I, I'm my, my emotional investment is always schadenfreude. Just so right. that's clear. Just like to put all the cards <laughs> on the table here. Um, so you're just building you, us up to see us crash. I mean, perhaps, perhaps I would never, um, let me ask you this. Is Raul Ruiz Diaz supposed to be healthy? I think, he, yeah. Like, my expectation, I fully expect him to uh, – 100% expect him to play, but I think he'll probably even start. Okay. Uh, Nico Ladera supposed to be healthy? That one I'm a little more skeptical of. I think I, – I honestly would be less surprised to see him miss the entire playoffs than to see him start on, on okay. uh, Tuesday. Okay. Uh, Jordan Morris going to play? Yes, I think, and I think he'll probably start. Jao Paulo going to play? And I, yes, I, I think of all of them, he's the one that's most likely to start. Yeah. Uh, Stefan Fry's going to play. Yeah. Most, most of that defense is going to play. Yeah, I'm not worried. I'm just not yeah, worried, man. Okay. Like, and this is no disrespect. Put it that way. Yeah, it's no disrespect to RSL. It's no disrespect to anybody in the West, but um, Sounders picked up 60 points this year without three best well two best 11 caliber players for the entire year and mm. with Rui Diaz in and out of the lineup um yeah. and this break came right at the right time though I guess with Ariaga picking up maybe a little injury it wasn't exactly perfect but like I don't know man like you kind of have to like something would have to go catastrophically wrong for me to pick against the Sounders this time of the year. And the other thing is like somebody else in the West would have to be really, really good. And I think there are solid teams in the West. I don't think anybody is really that good. So mm-hmm. the combination of Seattle's high floor because of their defense, 
uh, because of Zhao Paulo and the other central midfielders who have all been so good because of Steph Fry and goal. And then the high ceiling, because in Rui Diaz, you guys have one of the greatest match winners in MLS postseason history. I mean, you can still lose. It's sure. not a sure thing, but like, I don't know if I would be feeling worried if I was a Sounders fan at all. Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that's sort of how I feel is that when this team, assuming this team can put together a healthy, like a relatively healthy group, I'm not super worried. And, and like you said, 60 points, there, 20 goal difference. Uh, I looked it up. There's only 13 teams in MLS history that combined 60 points and 20 plus 20 goal difference in the history of the league. Oh, wow. I, and so that's a, it, it, a that's a good stat. That's yeah, a good stat was, right there, my friend. Look at you. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good stat. And uh, I mean, admittedly, a few of them came this year. Uh, well, two of them came. At least yeah. two of them came this year uh, with the 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 revs. And it seems like we've had more of these in recent years. But yeah, I mean, they've they've done this, and and they for them they also did it sort of during a youth movement. Now that's a relative term for the Sounders. They were still you know, about league average in terms of age, but they, they've traditionally been one of the oldest teams in the league. And now they're the fact that they're even close to a league average age wise, I think is sort of a step forward. I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, they've, they've had moments before where they like, they did a nice job developing Christian Roldan, obviously Jordan Morris developing Alex Roldan, Though, I mean, maybe he deserves credit for that himself, but we're starting to see more guys getting out to the field at younger age. You know, Josh Atencio being the obvious one this year. I thought he was really, really good. Um, and then, you know, Danny Leva, fewer minutes, but still promising. The way Nuhu uh, Tolo has, has sort of blossomed, and I mean, he really was the defender of the year halfway through the season. Yeah. Um, it does feel like last offseason they got it right in terms of turning the page on a bunch of guys who had been around for a while Lear Dam, Gustav Svensson, Jovic Jones uh, and I was wondering if they were going to be able to I mean we, we talked about it. I think the last time I was on this show or maybe it was your other show we talked about how both of us thought okay Seattle's going to take a step back yeah in 2021 maybe 50 52 points not you know not as a top because of that turning of the page and just not really being sure if this next generation could fill in and give meaningful minutes. Well, I mean, they, they passed that test with flying colors to, to not only to, to do what they did in and of themselves, but to do what they did in a team that was missing Ladero for the whole year mm -hmm. um, for them to come away with 60 points. It's a remarkable achievement. It is like, I think this is the second best Seattle Sounders regular season only behind the 2014 shield winning season. And that was a very different type of team with yes. a very different type of ethos. This one feels like it's on the come up. That one felt like it was at the peak. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I think that if anything, they got st stuck sort of keeping the group together a year longer than they should have in 2014, which was probably understandable, but I think that's what history showed us was that 2015 ended up being a year of they tried to hold on to it a little bit too long. Uh, whereas it, it feels like this year could have a really low turnover, even though they have a few guys that are in their thirties, almost all those guys 
seem like they are capable of putting together a few more years and they have so much kind of like stocked up in that, you know, lower end age wise of their, of their roster that you could see this team getting better. And, you know, especially if you, if you had told me the last, you know, the last time we talked, I don't think we were talking about Ladero missing virtually in the entire season. Like, I think we, we, we expected Morris to, to be gone, but to have Ladero also be gone uh, to have Rui Diaz sort of in and out of the lineup the way that he was, was a, ended up being a little bit of a surprise, I think. And they've just been, you know, dealing with so many injuries that it's hard for me not to come away impressed as a, you know, as an observer of this team. But in some ways, them getting to 60 points with only getting three in their last six is even more impressive. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, from a that, that's a that's a glass glass half full uh, sort of point yes. of view there, but yeah, it, is. It, it does it does say something about how good they were right up until October. The fact that they could basically take October off and still ended up on sixty points and with that second seed, which might be better than the first seed, to be honest with you. And I don't is that our segue? Should, yeah, should that's, we a, use that's like, a good that's a good yeah. segue because that was one of the things I was going to ask you about was. I have kind of taught like I don't I didn't like going into the postseason winless in six like there's no way around it you want to you don't want to back in and I don't know if you could say they backed in but they they didn't they didn't run into the playoffs they didn't come in sprinting and I don't think you're, you're fooling yourself if you think that's actually good but I do think that if they were going to finish second they wanted to be on the other side of the bracket of the Timbers and they wanted to and they wanted the RS or they wanted the Rapids to be the number one seed because I feel like that's a much more like the idea of going to Dick Sporting Goods Park is much more manageable in my mind than going to like uh, Children's Mercy Park. I mean, historically, right? The, the Sounders have not been right. great at, yeah, at Children's Mercy Park. So it does seem to line up pretty well in, in that regard. And the other thing is like, we've seen teams that get buys uh, stumble. We've seen like last year, think about how like the Revs just absolutely crushed Philly. In, yeah. in the the uh, in the Eastern Conference, I don't remember who had the buy in the Western Conference last year. Was it I don't sporting? think there was a, there was no buy in the Western Conference because oh, they had eight right. teams. Yeah, so so team so some it, it often happens that getting that extra game can be a help, and you know for for the Sounders team maybe a little less so than others. Like Seattle just has a way of finding their rhythm in the playoffs, so maybe they don't need the extra game. But I don't think they're looking at it as a burden. And in right. fact, it, it might be helpful because if you can get Jordan Morris 25 more minutes, get mm-hmm. him that much closer to, to fitness, that much closer to being, you know, game sharp, especially in the final third. Look, nobody else in the Western Conference can bring Jordan Morris off the bench for 25 minutes. Right. Like that is a, that is a really nice card to be able to play uh, at any point in, in this playoff run, should they make one. So I, I think the the buy sets up for or the you know the second seed not having the buy sets up for them uh, pretty well. As you said, being on the opposite side of the bracket of this of the Timbers is is actually I think pretty important because Timbers fourth seed we know they're not a great team defensively. Um, that said, when Sebastian Blanco has played this year, they pick up points at two points per game pace. That's better than anybody else in the Western Conference over the course of the whole season. Sebastian Blanco is healthy. And he's getting this, you know, two, three weeks of rest himself. So I I do think that it sets up pretty nicely uh, for the Sounders this month. Well, that sort of transitions into the, another question, which is 
if the Sounders are worried, if you think the Sounders should be worried about one team, who do you think that that probably is? I mean, it, to me, it, it is the Timbers. Um, they are a little bit opposite of Seattle and that I think their floor is very low. Um, I don't think Seattle has a low floor. Like I think that the, the, the worst performance Seattle can put out there um, is going to be like, Oh man, they, they give up maybe a crappy goal off a turnover and somebody falls asleep on a set piece and they lose two nil. Um, whereas like the last time they played the Timbers. There you go. Uh, <laughs> whereas the time before against the Timbers, we saw what the floor is for this Portland team. Uh, you know, and, and the, the thing is though, they still have that ceiling. They still have, you know, Felipe Mora, and then they could bring Nisgoda off the bench. They have Sebastian Blanco. They have Dairon Espria, who usually we only care about in the playoffs, but had a great year this year. Um, and they have the Chara brothers. And, like, yeah. that'll win you some games. And that, when you can run those guys out, um, you're presenting a, a very, very difficult matchup against anybody. Well, I don't want to overlook the team that they play first. Uh, is there anything about the about RSL's had a very strange season, and they've almost literally had two seasons: one with Freddie Juarez and one with Pablo Mastroeni. Uh, and like the results, like from a big perspective, have been pretty similar, but the way they got them was very different. Yeah, uh, Freddie Juarez, she's uh, like ultra conservative with that four-two-three-one, uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't a whole lot of fun to watch, to be honest with you. Um, they were, you know, they took very few risks. They were very, I think, well-drilled in a lot of ways, um, but they weren't very flexible. And, yeah, they weren't very fun. With Pablo Mastroeni, well, I think the first thing he did was switch the formation to a 3-5-2. He's got Demir Krylock playing as a second striker who can also function as a target forward as well, but is also kind of a midfielder because he was a number eight before he came to RSL. Um, and he, he presents such a unique threat. And he also just sort of naturally creates a really good partnership with any of the number nines um, it, it, for RSL. And then the other thing is, is he's doing this, this funky stuff with, with Aaron Herrera as sort of an underlapping right center back in that back three, which allows the the right fullback or the right wing back rather to stay wide or some, you know, bend in crosses or sometimes to dive inside and just be more numbers in the box. So it's, it's been completely different. It's like the opposite of conservative. The the issue with RSL though, and the, the way that I think they kind of play into Seattle's hands, like, look, as good as Seattle are in possession and, and, and you know, build up play, um, they're still murder in transition. If you're sloppy in midfield, you know, Jao Paulo is going to poke it away from you. The Roldan brothers are off to the races up the right side. You know, Brad Smith is coming in from left wing back as well. They're going to have runners in the, like they will kill you in transition. And with RSL, um, like even though they've played good, fun soccer, um, I won't say even though, I will say as they've played, good fun soccer the cost that they've had to pay is that that has opened themselves up to getting gashed in, in transition so they're the type of team who could be playing well oh we, we saw it in the, in the san jose game like two weeks before decision day they were playing really well they were dominating that game and then suddenly they were down four to one like that is like that is is crazy shit um that you don't see all the time especially from a playoff team, but there it was. And like, I, I just, 
I would be surprised if Seattle weren't able to take advantage of that, whether Ladero plays or not. Yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm inclined to agree with you. I hope you're right. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I want to pick your brain a little bit about the national team. But before I get into that, I had one question for you. I, I know you've been sort of beating this drum over the years about the one thing that uh, the Sounders haven't shown you under Brian Schmetzer is that he hasn't been able to do it for a full year. Does this year count? Does, do you feel like this year was maybe the year where Brian showed that he could he could do it for a whole season, even though the last six games didn't quite come yeah, off? Yeah, I mean, yeah, even though the last six games felt like he held this team, again, he held this team together without two best 11 players um, and with Rui Diaz, you know, in and out of the lineup more than I think anybody expected. You, They had one bad month. Um, 60 points, as you said, plus 20 goal differential while – um, developing young players to, I think, to a greater degree than uh, than he had done before, and at the same time, turning into a new era, in introducing a new form, really two new formations between the three five two and the three four two one. I mean, he he had a great year. I think almost any other year, it, he he would be considered coach of the year um, for for what he did. But like. For, like if your team gets 73 points, you're getting my vote. For yeah. Coach of the year yeah. Brian said this the other day at training. I actually did the same thing on my ballot is uh, he said, Robin Frazier is his coach of the year. And I think even if you like, I think Bruce is going to win. And I think Bruce deserves to win. But even if you are inclined to like give someone the sort of like who did the most with the least sort of award, I think Robin Frazier is probably gets it on that merit too. like Brian Schmetzer had a great year. I think it's, insane that this is the first time he's even been a finalist for coach of the year but i think that's probably the going to be the, the, the so most this is for this year this is what i would say though like it, i don't think and it's the same thing with, with like ladero never being best 11 like neither guy has put together a full season you know the closest ladero ladero was came, best 11 last year for what he was last year well yeah the last year is kind of like <laughs> no i hear you. No, i hear yeah, what you're yeah, saying um but like at, at, what year would, would like if you if you take if you could add the playoffs to the regular season then yeah Schmetzer has had you know manager of the year contention contender seasons but like just it's a regular season award and the Sounders have not had a great regular season under him they've had really good seasons they had that epic 2018 half season which was i still i think the best sounders team that i've seen under schmetzer um but like there there's not actually been an argument for him to be coach of the year for any particular year up until this year i do think he has an argument though again i I voted for Bruce. yeah yeah no I, i i can't argue with that and i i think 2018 was maybe the year where it felt like Brian could have gotten into the discussion. I don't remember who won it that year, uh, but probably Tata. Oh yeah, it was probably Tata. That makes mm. sense. Uh, but in any case, I, I, I'm I'm okay with him not winning it this year. Uh, it's it's more of a kind of career achievement thing with you know kind of like Stephen Fry, where it's like, how has he never been goalkeeper of the year? And it's like, well, has he ever had a goalkeeper of the year season? I mean, um, yes, that one is more of a head scratcher to me. Like I thought Fry in like 2017, I think it was, was, was probably the best in the league, but we're, we're digressing, aren't we? So, anyway. Yeah, we are a little bit, but let's get into the national team. They're obviously coming off a, uh, the U S national team. They're coming off 
a pretty successful window. I think you could say the highest of highs that they've had in the win over Mexico, the 2-0 win over Mexico. Uh, and then they came back down to earth a little bit as they've been prone to do, uh, especially under Berhalter, uh, with a 1-1 tie against Jamaica. Overall, what is like, and we'll, I want to get into pick your brain about some Sounders involvement, but overall, what's your feeling on the U.S. national team? Like as we sit here, uh, eff- effectively halfway through qualifying. I mean, it, it's it's two steps forward, one step back, which is better than one step forward and two steps back. Um, you know, the, the, there's been progress, but it, it hasn't been linear. Um, I'm disappointed. So it's, it's funny, like everything has kind of ended up focusing on the central midfield where I'm like really thrilled with the play of Weston McKenney and especially Eunice Musa. Uh, but I am equally disappointed in Sebastian Leggett, Gianluca Busio, uh, Kellen Acosta, who have had runouts as backup number eights and the, the gap between those guys and the starting caliber number eights is just massive. And it is one of the things that I, I think Jamaica was able to exploit last night um, to, to sort of turn the game on its head a little bit. Um, so, I mean, it, it's been more good than bad for the U S they are in control of their own destiny. Um, they have a, a schedule remaining that I, I think puts them as strong favorites to qualify um, and is you know, I, I'm pretty confident that they'll do it. But at the same time, it's like, okay, it turns out we might be one injury away from being up against it pretty hard. And that's worry. And then that is. Well, one more injury. They seems like they've always had one or two injuries. Uh, yeah, that's so, fair. so it's maybe it's like, I mean, they, they, the fact that they just went through this whole window without Gio Reyna, without Sergio Dest, without players who, you know, a year ago, if you had told us none of the, like, if you'd only, if you told us most of these stars were only going to be available for as much as they've been available, I think yeah. we, we, you would have assumed we were going to be in a much worse spot. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that a year ago, I felt like center back was the position that we were most stressing out about. And now you're leaving John Brooks home and it, and you barely noticed it during this last window. Like, I don't know that John Brooks, maybe John Brooks would have been helpful against Jamaica, but uh, it, it seems like, this position all of a sudden is is pretty deep and it's deep with guys that came through mls yeah for i mean for the most part right like miles robinson his gold cup was i mean robinson's gold cup was as good a a tournament as i've seen from a u.s center back maybe ever uh zimmerman what he did each of the last two windows now and um you know chris richards kind of came through mls yeah he was kind of part of the okay (laughs) um but like, and, and Richards, I think, is the most talented all-around center back in the in the pool. Though he still can make young player mistakes. So it, it, you're right; it has evolved into a position of strength, um, and that's in spite of Aaron Long's injury. I mean, remember before he did his Achilles, Aaron Long was the starter. We're talking about like, okay, it's Brooks and Long, who's going to be the the backup pairing. So that's evolved quickly in a really positive way, which is a huge relief. Um, and it's something that I don't want to say has bailed us out, but it's kept us afloat. Um, even as the midfield has kind of, uh, been less than I think what we want it to be other than the games where McKenny, Musa and Adams can all play. Together. Now it seems like Christian Roldan has become sort of a controversial figure in the U S national team. I would imagine based on everything you've said, I'm guessing 
you would like to see more from you or you think he could play a bigger role but i'll let you say what you want to say but uh before we get into that how concerning should it be as someone who hopes to see christian in qatar that he didn't get off the bench for either one of these games especially jamaica which to me struck me as a game sort of tailor-made for a, a christian rolled on influence um I mean, it's not great, right? Like these yeah. were big games and, and he didn't get on the field. And, and that's, uh, that, that, that does not indicate that he, uh, he has got a lock on, on a spot. Um, that said, my money is still on Roldan being the, the 23rd man on the roster in, in Qatar if the U.S. should make it. Because like you, you, there's not a person in the world who will say a bad word about Christian Roldan. He's like right. the most beloved teammate, um, I think, for every team that he's ever played for. And he's versatile. Um, we've seen him play right back. We've seen him play right wing back. We've seen him play winger on both sides. And we've seen him play as number eight. The reason he didn't get on the field, and this is weird because he's very good at it in MLS, but he, he has not shown the ability to do it in, uh, in the, for the national team, is just a lack of pitch control. Like when, when the game is around him in MLS, I think he does a very good job of – conducting the game both with the ball and without the ball and limiting the type of movement that is possible from the opposition. He has not been able to do that for the national team. Now, granted, excuse me, if my cat makes a cameo, um, granted uh, he has not had a ton of opportunities to do that with the first team. It's still it's still not an excuse for how poor he's looked when yeah. he's played as a number eight for the U S and it like, I think he's kind of played himself out of that in terms of contention for that position. And now it's more about like, okay, can you be a pressing winger? Right. Can you be a utility guy? Um, and it's a shame because I think he's a really, he's a really good player. He, he just hasn't showed it for the U S yeah, it's it is kind of weird. I, I agree that he hasn't been as good in the middle, and it seems like his main competition at this point is probably like Paul Ariola for for playing time and for like maybe he's got an upper hand. Like weirdly, maybe he has an upper hand of getting to Qatar, but yet he's behind him when it comes to like, are you going to play today? Uh, I, and I don't and I don't quite understand that. I I feel like Roldan does a lot of the same things that Ariola does, maybe without quite the ability to stretch the field but a lot of that energy stuff and sort of like a pressing like you said like a pressing winger uh but i don't know it's it's interesting uh the other player i'm curious on your take on is it seems like the number nine spot weirdly has stayed open in a way that i don't think i anticipated i and even though jordan morris hasn't played number nine for a while does that maybe give him an opening to get into this team uh in the second half of qualifying and and potentially to qatar it might, um, but, you know, everything that, that Burhalter has sort of indicated that he likes from a number nine um, is dropping back into play and linking play and being that sort of Jesus Ferreira type um, who can release the wingers rather than, like, if Jordan Morris was going to play a number nine, he, he would play off the shoulder. You know, he wouldn't be holding the ball up. He could link play pretty well he's a much better passer than a lot of people want to give him credit for but he's not that's he's, he's yeah he's not a false nine he, he he would be an off the shoulder through the lines type of number nine 
I mean, it's a different look. And the fact that he can, in theory, do that, I think does bode well for his inclusion long term because you want to have different looks to throw, you know, at that position. He could play on the right side of the three, he could play on the left side of the three, he could play, if he can play in the middle as well, then that's good. Like, it's especially good for a tournament setting, but this is all it's at this point and like supposition. We need to see him get healthy again. Um, mm. And it wouldn't be missed to, to see him maybe play some as a center forward before we, you know, dive in too deep on that. Yeah. Do you, do you think he has much of a chance of getting in as in the, like, I know at one point we thought he was near the top of the depth chart yeah. as wingers, but that was also in a, that was when, that was kind of before. Wea had established himself and before Gino Reyna had established himself to the degree that he has. And, uh, you know, Pulisic was there, but it was kind of, you know, there was, it was a much more open field and now it feels like it's narrowed and there's, you know, three or four guys who are really locked in at those positions. There are, but like none of those guys have ever been as prolific and as productive as Jordan Morris was before this most recent ACL injury. Like mm-hmm. if that, if that version of Jordan Morris comes back, like it, you can't leave him off the roster. I don't know what that means for the long-term structure of the roster because, like, obviously, Brendan Aronson has played his way into contention. Right. Um, Tim Weah, as you said, has played his way into contention. It, it, like, I think Christian Pulisic has mostly been bad for the U.S. for a couple of years. It's hard to imagine a world in which we're leaving Christian Pulisic <laughs> out of the, right. you know, and like same with like. I'm not as big a Gio Reyna guy as a lot of people are. He's obviously incredibly gifted. I'm not sure he's an incredibly effective soccer player yet, but like, I don't think we're going to be leaving him off of any rosters either. If he, if he should ever be healthy again. So it's, it's the good kind of problem to have for Greg Berhalter. And um, you know, I like, I tend to lean towards the guys who produce goals and assists. Jordan Morris has done a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to close out with you with a kind of a bigger, uh, a bigger picture question about the national team. And, you know, a lot of the talk recently has been, uh, be, and I, maybe it's, we're getting ahead. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves, to be honest. Like we haven't qualified. There's, you know, the, the gap between us and fourth place is still one point. So it's like, we, we don't want to be counting our chickens before they hatch too much. But uh, if things continue to go the way they do, it does seem like we are, we're certainly in a better place than we were for then 2018 qualifying. And it's been said by more than a few people that missing out on 2018 was actually good for us. And I don't necessarily need to get into that debate, but I think the thing that I'm interested in a little bit is, do you think our concern over failing to qualify was maybe overstated? Like, I think there was a lot of sense of like, Oh, this could be the end of soccer in the United States uh, in a lot of ways. Like, like people are just going to abandon MLS. They're going to abandon it. They're going to stop rooting for us soccer. It's going to be out of sight, out of mind. And in four years, we'll be lucky to, you know, register. And yet here we are uh, posting the biggest ever qualifying numbers on TV when we play Mexico. Yeah. I, I mean, I never saw a whole lot of that. Um, I, I guess it was out there. I, I think it unquestionably failing to qualify was a setback for yeah. you know the the game here um but for the national team and the perception of the national team um that was that's where the real setback was at the same time like the the seeds were there 
You know, the 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 USU 20s had made the quarterfinals in 2015 and in 2017, and we were seeing that great 2019 group, which included guys like Chris Richards, Sergio Dest, um, you know, a few others who haven't necessarily panned out yet, but I think still could. Um, they were starting to come through as well, and more to the point, like you could see in the you know, at the academy level, the, the, it was, I don't want to say night and day, but it was unquestionably better what we were seeing in 2017 than it had been in 2015, than it had been in 2013. And it was easy to lose sight of that because, yeah, if your team doesn't qualify for the World Cup, it sucks, man. It feels like the sky is falling. But the foundation was still solid and the, the sort of conveyor belt of talent was clearly still, you know, gearing up and, and starting to hum a little bit. And, you know, that was, that was right when Tyler Adams had just finished his first season as a, as an MLS starter. And it was like, okay, like he, 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 I don't want to say he changed things, but like he was a very obvious thing you could point to. It's like, this is a really good player starting for a really good team. He's going to make them a lot of money. And other teams took note of that. And suddenly other teams were giving And then Alfonso Davies too, obviously not exactly applicable because, you know, he's not American and he's like a once in a generation world caliber talent. Um, but like having those guys out there, I think made it easier for the Philadelphia unions of the world or mm -hmm. FC Dallas and even now to the Sounders to start trusting their young players and to start investing the, the resources necessary. And I don't just mean cash, but I mean like, you know, IP essentially institutional knowledge in terms of developing players and getting them out there. And like that was all still cooking in spite of the failure in Cuba. And I, I understand why that got overshadowed, but we didn't get to this point where MLS teams all over the league are selling guys to Champions League clubs by accident. Like this has been steady, very obvious, and kind of easy to track growth. So, you know, I, I found, with your help, uh, a story that you wrote back in 2017 that kind of was sort of like diagnosing a little bit of some of this failure. It was called the true cost of U.S. soccer's World Cup failure. And you you pointed out a lot of problems that I think are in, are running like kind of in parallel to the to the conveyor belt idea that there was all this talent, but yet there's still all these holes that we aren't doing a very good job of filling. And it's has to do with how expensive it is to get a coaching license, how expensive it is to to be a youth player in this country. Do you and and since then we've seen the demise of the. Uh, the academies or the uh, U.S. Developmentally, Developmental Academy uh, and MLS Next sort of filling in that gap. Uh, are we in a better place, do you think, than we were like from a manufacturing, for lack of a better term, uh, viewpoint? Or do, are we still like you know, all this talent came up, but yet it still feels like there's a lot of talent that we might be missing? Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like that. Um, but I do think we're in a better place overall because more MLS teams are interested in actually developing them down. Like that is like that, that is the way to really change this is 
not just the union and the Red Bulls and FC Dallas making money on these sales, but like every team across two countries doing that. Um, and we're starting to see a lot more interest in that. And USL teams, their academy initiative um, over the past three or four years it has been rocketized. Um, they've done it like they've done a much better job. There are a number of those academies that are free to play. Um, I think there are maybe twice as many free to play academies as there were uh, four or five years ago. I, I don't have the exact numbers on that, but it's, it's, it's more every single MLS Academy is free to play now, which is different. Um, at the same time, the USSDA going away caused some short-term hiccups, you know, like uh, some, some teams like Patty Doris in California, a great club team. They're playing, I think in ECNL instead of MLS next, just because the, the logistics of getting it all together on short notice because like the rug got pulled out with the USSDA, like the snap of a finger, um, the logistics weren't there for a lot of these clubs to just switch just like that. So there's been a bit of a scramble. So in the short term, there are some inefficiencies. I think in the long term, uh, it's going to be a much better thing. And we'll start seeing that. I would guess by 2024 at the latest, we'll start to see more uniformity of uh, not just schedules, but like training ideologies and like coaching levels, uh, the ability to get more good coaches uh, in front of more talented young players at every age group um, in places where we just didn't have that kind of, those kind of resources. Uh, well, that's, that's a good place to, I think, to end this. Um, usually I ask people to plug stuff that they're doing. I'm guessing that most of our listeners already <laughs> listen to Extra Time. They probably, hopefully, read you on MLSsoccer.com. Do you have any other, do you have anything you want to plug? Like, is there a podcast out there that you think people should be listening to that uh, will just make them smarter and better people? Um, better soccer fans, maybe? No, nah, I'm going to go away from soccer. You said smarter and better people. Listen to okay. Revolution. Listen to Revolutions by Mike Duncan. Oh, that's a good uh, one. I've actually I, I've listened yeah. to that quite a bit. He's he's brilliant. Um, it, it's made me smarter about civilization and how we got here uh, in, in in this country and in this world. Um, and it's fun. He, he's a lot of fun. So yeah, if you want smarter and better people, listen to that one. Yeah, and and people don't know it's basically they spend a season going over various revolutions. Like they each see each season is a different revolution. Yeah, right? it starts with the like English the, Revolution with Cromwell and everything back in the 1600s, and then the U.S. Revolution, France, France Haiti, Russia. Um, yeah, and he's on Russia now. Russia is going to be the last one. It's like already 80 episodes long, so dive <laughs> deep into it. Um, but it's fantastic. It's like my favorite thing happening right now. I look forward to each episode. Um, so Monday morning as I'm doing the dishes, I'm listening to revolutions. Nice. Well, that's a, that's a good one. Well, uh, that's a good place to to call this, uh, Matt, thank you for doing this. Uh, I'm Jeremiah Shan signing off for the Sounder at Heart podcast, and we will catch you next time. All right.